Hello and welcome to Imagine an Apple, the podcast about our varying inner mental experiences. My name's Francis and today I'm chatting with my co-host Vin about how different people experience emotion differently as in their body, in their minds, as colours. <laughs> It was great interviewing Tom Cochrane yesterday about his book about emotion. Yeah. So just to recap, Tom's book is called The Emotional Mind, and you can get it by uh, emailing him. Uh, and he's very open to anyone just reaching out to chat to him and also discuss his ideas. So one of the most interesting things is Tom's approach to emotions, which I think can be contrasted with much of the literature that is currently popular about emotions is he's using a control theory of emotion and tom goes into a bit of a goes into quite a bit of depth of what that means i don't know what, what do you think about like the control theory of emotions compared to the lisa feldman barrett stuff yeah so i read read her her book recently as well and yeah she's much more in the this um idea that the brain is a prediction machine and part of what you're doing when you make a prediction is then act- acting to uh you can make a prediction that you want to be true almost and then action is altering the prediction and that prediction is a mechanism both for predicting and for causing action which is slightly different from control theory honestly i'm not sure i care about the difference much because i'm a little bit more interested in the impact of emotion i think there's an interesting cognitive science question about how the brain works but my general sense is we haven't done enough experiments yet. Uh, I really like the beginning of Lisa's book, where she gives loads of the experiments from her lab that have talked about stuff we thought we knew about facial expressions and emotion not really being true. Uh, and Tom references a few uh, of the experiments in our interview. But overall, my general sense is we've done a lot of not really great experiments collectively as, as humanity in the last 50 years. And we need to do some more organic ones and more ones where the people are embedded in everyday life, um, perhaps. I don't know. What do you reckon? Yeah, no, definitely. Some uh, new experiments about emotions is always a key one because uh, we began with Paul Ekman stuff, which really became the the standard for most people when discussing emotion. And that's proven to be a, a problematic theory. Uh, the idea of like basic emotions and how Paul Ekman's studies didn't really account that people were actually experiencing emotions in a different way. He just happened to set up his experiments in such a way that confirmed his biases. And so experimentation always is uh, is fraught unless it's um, replicable. And I think this forms part of like the, the replication crisis we see in psychology. Um, so it'd be interesting to see how Tom's more philosophical and systematic approach to the, the control account of emotions uh, squares in with experimental evidence that that can maybe verify his theories. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. Okay. Um, anything else you've got to reflect about, like either of those, for, for what they were saying? Yeah, I suppose <laughs> Tom's theories are very much more systematic and more philosophical in its approach and i really appreciate that it's i mean there's so many ways to study emotion and in addition to like this this control theory approach uh i'm also interested in like the history of emotions and i know you're really interested in the phenomenology of emotion and i'm wondering how those approaches to emotions might bring to the table something completely new in perspective 
Mm-hmm. And one of the people I'm, one of the approaches I'm thinking about is uh, Thomas Dixon, who is a well-known history of emotions a researcher. And basically, what he does is he scours the literature for how emotions have been used to describe internal mental states, and how that term only emerged in the 1830s. At least this is um, what what it, what, what mm-hmm. David gives according to his genealogy. Which really brings the whole like field or like the whole concept of an emotion into relief because what did people use to think about uh, their mental states um, that we would now call emotions before they had the term and the category of emotion? So it's not just they didn't have, it's almost like you're saying emotion isn't a concrete concept, really. It's a concept we have in our modern society. I'm not even sure everyone agrees what it means, even in our current society, actually, which is why I'm interested in the phenomenology. Yeah. So you're, so you're saying it was very different at other times in other countries, that kind of Yes. Thing. So I guess the, 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 the technical term is to describe it as anachronistic or, I don't know, anatopic. It basically means it's out of date and out of out of place does the word emotion describe the mental experiences of people from different histories and different cultures. An example of this is how Aquinas, for example, right, uh, Thomas Aquinas, writing in the 12th, 13th century, I think, never mo- uses the word emotion, but instead uses terms like passion, uh, affections, and sentiment. And we're used to thinking of these terms as synonyms for emotion. Just think, yeah, th- th- those are obviously synonyms from our perspective but the distinctions that that mattered between delineating passions from say for example affections or um, moral sentiments is that one was intrinsically seen as sinful it, it belonged to the lower level feelings the stirrings of this of the of the body and things that we wouldn't consider as emotions such as lust or you know um, feeling cold or feeling pain uh, these would have been seen as expressions of like the passion, whereas I think they're a bit too physiological to count as emotions in our modern day understanding of that. But likewise, on the other hand... That was in which period? Medieval. Yeah. So uh, Thomas Aquinas writing about this would have been, yes, uh, pretty much middle, uh, middle of the medieval period. And he... So these are the passions and it's usually contrasted with the, the the affections, what we might maybe call from our modern perspective, the higher level emotion. Uh, and a higher level emotion such as affection would include things like love for God or sympathy for your fellow human beings, mm. having empathy for fellow for your fellow creatures. And these were things that were supposed to like guide your your reason. So in this like dichotomy between affections and and the reason we don't find the common trope that is now typical of framing emotions versus rationality. Um, that might have been true for passions versus the reason, and that might mirror our emotion versus rationality discourse. But in uh, in the past, at least, when you had this distinction between the affections and the on the one hand and passions on the other, people could make uh, more finer, more, much finer distinctions between feelings that were good and supposed to rightly guide the the reason and and passions which were supposed to be mm. rightfully guided by or conquered by the faculty of reason 
That's all super interesting. That fits really well with Lisa Feldman Barrett's general point that emotion is constructed and social and mm-hmm. is concepts that we make up as a society. And it's interesting you bring in rational, rational thought into that as well, because, yeah, there is this idea that there's emotions and there's rational thought, and that's maybe fundamental to brain structure almost, or to our body. But you're sort of saying that this show, would they treat rational thought in that same, in, in, that would be categorized differently as well as the emotions being categorized differently? Yep, completely. Um, mainly because they didn't have um, this catch-all term that we have. They, they. One thing that the medieval writers, the medieval Christian theologians, at least, wouldn't have done that we do on a daily basis with our category of emotion is we reduce up passions into emotions, and we also reduce down the higher level affections into emotions. So we only have this one category. Whereas maintaining these distinctions seems like a very important way to conceptualize how we go about thinking and making decisions. Yeah, great. Can you give any other examples, like maybe present day ones, where, you know, emotion's different somewhere else uh, outside the West? Ooh, I think it's really difficult. I think it's really difficult to separate um, non-Western conceptions of emotion from Western ones, mainly because even while I was growing up, we... So the Malay terms for emotion are emosi, <laughs> which obviously uh, is a direct like, calking or loan word from, from English. The, perhaps feeling there is like the word perasaan, which translates to feeling, but can also be literally translated as like tasting um, because the root word rasa to taste so that's something quite interesting going on there where we use like feel which is typically more associated with with touch to describe emotion or like some type of like mental state akin to emotion other cultures might use different sensory modalities Mm. and this kind of ties back into like the synesthesia that some people have whenever they're um, and how certain emotions are associated with color they become colored like literally as in red is an expression of uh, anger for instance green with jealousy so there's all these interesting ways that like the other sensory modalities feed into our conceptions of emotion and not just like uh, visual stimuli such as color but also uh, emotions that are overwhelming uh, and anger like typically are considered to be hot emotion and i think this is quite an interesting thing to to note because it it, it Anger being, you know, a, a temperature or or cool uh, sadness being cool and melancholy, for instance, really speaks to how we experience our emotions in multiple mo- modalities. And I, I'm not yeah. sure. If, yeah. Yeah, no, I, definitely. There are lots of ways people experience emotion, which sometimes gets under talked about. People just, uh, yeah, d- don't mention it enough. Your color example, there's a lovely example, which I just found randomly. There's a book by um, Herbert and someone called Schwitch Gable. Uh, Hilbert's the researcher at Las Vegas University who uh, documents people's inner experiences by giving them a random buzzer and making them write down what they were experiencing. And they did this in detail on one of their uh, researchers. She volunteered to have her experiences published in a book called, yeah, it's called Describing Inner Experience, Proponent Meets Skeptic. And specifically, there's one which really struck me where she's She's reading some documentation to assemble some furniture and laughing at something in it. And the humour appears in her head as a kind of rosy yellow glow. So she literally sees in her imagination a particular rosy yellow glow mm. to represent this, this 
uh, emotion of humor of funniness and that was like i was like no one's ever said anything like that to me and this isn't like they've looked for a strange person who's synesthetic this is a completely random just as one sample in this perfectly you know perfectly normal woman's mental experience yeah really interesting i mean you you, do you think i just want to while while it's still in my mind you said the malay word was using taste did you say more than touch and do you think that might even alter because lots of people talk about getting bodily sensations and emotions which i don't feel like i do much or if i do i'm not Mm. categorizing them as emotions which is another possibility right do you think maybe people who speak Malay as their first language might get tastes as emotions more often because of this. I don't don't think it's necessarily to do with the culture. I think it's more to do with how much people experience their emotions as part of like some bodily sensation rather than how much they think it's happening all in their head. Um, Mainly, and the reason I say this is because although there's like a, a rich... Uh, vocabulary in Malay to describe emotions as happening in, for example, like your heart or your belly or your belly liver. So there's literally an expression to say that if you have no compassion for someone, then you lack belly liver, you lack hati parut. So that kind of suggests that uh, compassion is felt in in the stomach uh, or like this viscera region. And I think that's similar to how English also has the word like heartless to describe someone for for being not compassionate or showing sufficient level of kindness, um, the suffering of others. Um, and I think there's this, there's something going on when people speak about certain body parts being associated with with strong emotions. And English probably had that more in the past when we're more embodied, I guess. But with the advent of like word category of emotion and how that was associated, that people began to associate um, this thing as being a purely mental activity rather than coming from the heart, not like the metaphorical heart, but like the literal heart, then you predict these feelings as coming from your head and maybe at the detriment of noticing it appearing elsewhere in the body. Um, I, I certainly feel my emotions very much in the body, especially in more recent times and as I've become more aware and started ad, um, adapting, uh, adopting more meditative practices. So stress in my shoulders, lumps in my throat whenever I feel embarrassed. Um, I think when there's a, a threat to my reputation, I, I feel it very strongly in like the abdominal region. And it's really like quite interesting to uh, mm-hmm. be able to experience all this and realize when someone says, oh, I'm experiencing heartbreak, they don't mean it as in, oh, my metaphorical heart is breaking. No, no they're feeling it as in like the sinews mm-hmm. of their heart are probably tugging and like the emotions there, are, like the, the muscles there are tensing up. And that's being registered if you mm. look for it in, in those parts. But you're not going to look, for, you're not going to notice that. In fact, you're likely to ignore it if you think, if you focus that, uh, if you think that your emotions are happening in your head and you focus all your attention there. So well, what's actually going on here? So we know from some of the stuff Tom Cochrane said that emotion is very cognitive. So something like embarrassment necessarily, necessarily requires social modeling. So it's not like your body is directly responding. It's going via the brain. And the brain somehow influencing the feeling in the, in the body or feeling it up, making up the feeling in the body. Yeah. 
Um, but we also, Lisa Felmer Barrett talks a lot, a lot about body budgets and the purpose of both affect and I think emotion as well mm. to alter how the body decides to, you know, allocate resources. An obvious one would be produce adrenaline, say, right? So it might be that you're feeling something which is caused by the emotion that's to try and like an action taken from the emotion by the physical body. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what do you have any idea what's going on with this? Like, is it... Is it made up in the mind or is there a real feeling in the body? And then how's that feeling getting caused when it it must be cognitive as well as physical? So I have no expert opinion about this, but if I were trying to like hazard a guess, I think the mind, i.e. the nervous system, because it's throughout the body, it affects more than just whatever's going in the skull. Certainly whenever I feel like a, a jouissance or like a, a frisson, it, it, it emerges um, from my spine and it starts to like ripple out from the body rather than, oh yeah, I'm feeling this incredible pleasant sensation. It, it's because my brain is generating it. I'm like, no, probably it's coming from a part of my body that is processing this emotion and then generating sensations from that part. And, and I think cognition is very much intertwined with the nervous system and the nervous system isn't all in the head. I think mm. the brain certainly gets certainly is responsible for much of this cognitive decision making, but the brain is also connected to the spinal cord, and the spinal cord is connected to every nerve in the body, and, well, and that kind it, of innovates the the whole organism instead of just remaining within the, within the skull. Critically, the gut brain in this as well. We've got a, yeah. a, a brain as complex as the spinal cord in in our guts, which could be doing some computation and working something out. Yeah, certainly. I think uh, I think having good emotional slash mental health also affects how the gut processes things and how it does its job. Certainly the immune system is very strongly affected by our mental states. And if you have, you know, you're suffering from depression, I think research has shown that people tend to have weaker immune systems when their mental state is um, jeopardized in some way. Or likewise, it goes the other way around having poor immune system can affect uh, our mental um, mental state yeah yeah there was actually a great bit about that again in lisa feldman barrett where she talks about if you develop your emotional intelligence by paying more attention to your emotions and getting more granular and being more perceptive of your emotions that can then potentially improve other things like your mental health your bodily you know your bodily health and so on yeah (laughs) i i kind of like that because instead of like doing uh, instead of taking your vitamins or what have you and your tabs, yeah. um, you could just think through your emotions and an emotionally healthy, um, emotionally intelligent person would be just as mm-hmm. effective as at regulating their diseases and like immune system than someone who takes the... Train, train your pharmacy. managing of your body budget to be super detailed. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Yeah. So would you say that most of the time when you use the phrase that you experience emotion, is it usually a bodily feeling when you experience emotion? Or do you sometimes experience it as imagery or words? Or So it's interesting because I don't really imagine, I don't have much imagination when it comes to emotion, but I de- definitely express it in words whenever I'm not feeling it, feeling it cognitively, if I'm not cognizing emotion as in, as opposed to like feeling it bodily, it feels like I'm suppressing some part of uh, an emotion. And so I have to like cogitate about it 
and so it feels like it's happening more in my brain, more in my head than it is um, in my body. But so if I start suppressing it, it kind of like reemerges somewhere else in the body. And I so that's um, yeah, go on. an emotion you're trying by suppressing. You mean like hiding? Yes. Or trying to not feel it almost, or you don't want to feel it. Yep. Or like I don't want to express it, and it the expression sort of goes into my head, and, and I'm becoming more aware of like the feeling without necessarily sensing it in a, in a body in a body part mm. and then you're saying it then can go to a different body part. yeah that's exactly well as i found out recently that's what it does apparently <laughs> there's no suppressing it oh i see yeah yeah so you'll feel right so rather than correctly feeling it in your heart you'll then get tension in your neck or something that kind of thing yes yes typically this is something uh uh if the if the feeling, if the emotion is being expressed or being felt in the face, such as like clenching of the jaws or like some furring of the brows or something like that, some contorting of the face, I'll be very mindful of this because obviously it's uh, the face is a site of social information and mm. I don't want to, um, you know, put people off with my disgust or like my anger. And so I'll mm. suppress it in my face. But in doing so, uh, not only am I like thinking about it in my head, it's also being expressed probably somewhere else and it's gone mm. to my, I don't know, viscera region or down to my my fist. And I, I'll notice that when I look at my hands, it'll, it's clenched up in a ball or something. Or, you know, it could be anywhere in the body. And each time I notice where it's being expressed and I try to suppress that, it probably so finds somewhere else to like find some other outlet. Yeah explode through that's really interesting because i'm actually very my face is very expressive like people often notice emotions i don't even realize i've got by looking right. at my face so i <laughs> i think i'm just wondering if i'm doing that to stay like relaxed and chill i deliberately let it express subconsciously right yeah um, yeah is it is that a meta emotion then because tom cochrane used this phrase emotion for emotions about emotions was a meta emotion so if you're you've got some other reason to not show your emotion in your face and then you suppress it and then you feel it somewhere else in a negative way. It might be that you're feeling almost the negative, the meta emotion in another place kind of might be wrong. No, yeah, I've never thought about it that way. I've never thought about um, me suppressing one emotion and it then re-emerging somewhere else as like an expression of the meta emotion of that emotion rather than the emotion itself, if that makes sense. Hmm. I'll have to come back to you on that one, but. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure if it helps, but yeah. Okay, that's super, yeah, so much going on here. Definitely asking people how they experience emotion is a very interesting thing to do. So I'm completely different from you. I do, I don't know, I'm not sure I count bodily things as emotion as much. So some people have referenced hunger as being emotion occasionally. I think Lisa Fellman Barrett has, uh, whereas oh, I think Tom Cochrane would make say it was affect more. Yep. Yeah, is it more an affect? Yeah, hunger definitely. Yeah, both of them are um, the affect. Right. So, because I certainly wouldn't count something like hunger as an emotion, even mm -hmm. though it, it can be a physical feeling. Although even then, even hunger is not always a physical feeling in me. Sometimes I just become rationally aware that oh. I'm getting, I might have some other expression of hunger, like low blood sugar levels making me you know, hangry, like a bit right. catchy or annoyed. And then I'll mm -hmm. cognitively go not consciously, but cognitively realize I must be hungry. And then I will feel, say I'm hungry and go and get some food, but actually mm. I haven't necessarily even felt I'm hungry yet. And so typically when I feel emotion, I become conceptually aware. So I use lots of what Herbert calls unsymbolized conceptual thinking. Mm -hmm. So this is thinking, when you think in your mind, you don't have images, you don't have words, 
but it's quite active and it's about concepts. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it comes as a detailed, rich awareness of a, of a concept um, in my head. And quite often I'm aware of emotions like that. And I'll go, oh, I def- I'm feeling a complicated emotion. I don't even have a word for it. It's very, very common. I'll go, I can sort of start to describe it or why I'm feeling it, but it's rich and detailed and I can't express in words what this emotion is. And it very much feels very, they feel very mental to me, like they're cognitive, complex, rich, intuitive, cognitive responses, usually to social situations, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, I, and they're definitely emotions. And sometimes they wash through me, like it'll, the expressions I get that are physical. <clears throat> crying, I really like crying. I find it really powerful. And it's very, crying is an extremely rich language. Mm-hmm. There's lots of subtly different ways of crying and it can express all manner of emotions really well. Uh, and it somehow releases it. It feels like a fulfillment in a good way of the emotion to cry for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I get other, I sometimes get like pulses through my body, um, yeah. particularly extreme situations, like something really amazingly good, uh, like romantically or even a situation, like a thing that happens, I might get a rush of emotion through me. And I've definitely had like all the common ones, some of the common ones we have words for, like butterflies in your stomach. I have had like, those, those, some of those ones we have words for. But yeah, it seems relatively rare. And I know there's an idea that we ought to feel our bodily emotion more. It's quite often mentioned amongst people. Who, like, do you know wh- wh- where that's come from? Is it kind of Alexander Technique? Or yeah, I definitely, people? I'm not sure if it's originated from Alexander Technique, but I've certainly heard many AT people um, endorse this embodiment and like being aware of the bodily sensations so it's certainly popularized by alexander technique crowd whereas when we asked tom cochrane this he said oh yeah there's a bit of a dispute about whether emotions bodily or whether it's situational and sometimes i feel like oh there's something wrong with me or i'm feeling like i'm being too much of a geek by not mm-hmm. feeling emotions in my body enough but other times i'm like well actually i am or i do feel my emotions but i feel them as rich com- concepts and that feels very valuable thing to do as well in a different mm-hmm. way. But maybe that means I don't manage my body budget as well, right? Because I'm not as connected to my body. Yeah. I, I think Tom's argument was that it can be both bodily sensation as well as like mental, higher mental experience. And that's what he's trying to bridge with his control theory of emotion. Mm. Yeah, definitely both are involved. There's like little doubt about that. Mm. From what from what I've uh, from what I've been from what they both what they both say and what we've been talking about, it feels like it is emotions very unusual because it's both bodily and cognitive. Yeah, I suppose that, like a good example of this is like with the crying thing. Weeping can have multiple uh, meanings. It could it's certainly very strongly associated with like sadness, at least in our culture. Mm-hmm. But um, so Thomas Dixon wrote a book on with Weeping Britannia, Portrait of a Nation tears and it goes again he's another like his historian of emotion that traces this particular expression just producing tears or like lacrimation and um, looks at how it has symbolized different sorts of emotions throughout the six centuries of weeping britain from medieval mystics who are experiencing ecstasy for god and how tears for god were seen as this joyful expression to tears as like a sign of melancholy to tears of rage and how it became suppressed during the victorian era and the and the idea of like the british stiff upper lip emerged and mm-hmm. suddenly weeping became a sign of like weakness um which I, thankfully it's now the um, 
becoming, uh, you know, has less purchase in most people's minds these days. And it just goes to show how like the attitudes towards tears and, and, and crying change over over time in history. Mm. So just that one expression is, is again, it's complex <clears throat> as well as, but it also seems natural. It's not like anyone's told me to cry when I feel this complex emotion. Mm-hmm. I yep. don't think I've even seen, I don't feel like I've seen, I guess there must be films and things where I've seen people do complex uses of crying, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so perhaps I have taken it in culturally a bit. Hmm. Very interesting. So it's much like it's a skill more. It's much like any other human activity, isn't it? Where there's different ways we can learn to do it and different ways we can engage with it. Yeah. Yeah. So this is interesting because like this ties back to like what Tom said yesterday about, you know, for example, who is like responsible for the expression of a, of an emotion? Like, is it triggered by, especially like the social emotions, um, when you have a reactive attitude to someone, sort of resentment at some norm violation does your anger therefore become triggered by the other person who is violating the norm or are you responsible for like regulating your your Mm. feelings of of anger and and so there's all this like debate about like who is responsible for it and what are the correct ways to express anger and there was this famous piece of like ethnography about the eskimo and how their expression of they don't they don't experience anger which is a like i suppose um, edgy way of saying that their emotional regulation of anger is so powerful that people just do not express it in uh, ways that we might recognize it mm. from in, in a Western emotional uh, norm. So my, I don't, I'm really, I, what, a thing I learned when I did a lot of therapy was that I don't express anger and I hide my anger way too much. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still feel, I still experience it, but I hide it. And that's definitely come from my family. I think my whole family does that. Yeah, and I, I ultimately think it's uh, an adaptive thing to cope with World War Two. Actually, in the yeah. end, it goes all the way back to there, and that's definitely caused me some problems because I don't communicate when there's something that strongly doesn't meet my needs, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I, I like tend to hide it. Yeah, which so it's interesting that even in a society where there's anger, you can have sub you know subsets of people who then don't use that in some yep. way. And presumably, the cultures where there isn't anger at all, but that are very functional, hopefully they have—you you, say—they probably got another way of dealing with the same problems mm-hmm. that mean they almost don't need anger because they're so good at communicating needs anyway. That kind of thing. yeah. And I, I've certainly like experienced this clash in cultures and like emotional styles is like how I'm going to call it. Mainly because like growing up in different sorts of environments sometimes you're expected to show anger and other situations you're not expected to show anger so when you start to anger when you start to express this emotion in according to like the wrong norms of uh, if if it's very much in discord with the cultural norms of how you should express that anger in a situation then you can get into a lot of trouble and one example is um, with at least many of my friends that I'm currently living with, and I, I live in the UK at the moment, there's a premium on being direct about your emotions and at least um, being forthright about when your needs are not being met um, because suppressing it can to resentment and further down the line, this is, can cause all sorts of problems. Mm. And so it's better to like have these outbursts rather than to not have them. And I certainly um, experienced this when I was being raised by my by, by my uncle and having like 
grown up with a different set of norms, this was very difficult for me to like um, pick up. But then I learned it all the same. And so when I l- went back to my parents to live with them for a few months um, after I graduated, I was um, acclimatized to like these new norms of like express your anger all the time. Um, and that was obviously like wrong when I brought it back to the home environment where anger is not supposed to be expressed, least of all, least of all from someone who is seen as like lower down the the social hierarchy if you have no authority then you you're not supposed to show anger and when i when i did assert like my needs and authentically like expressed my my emotions that was met by disregard or like insolence and Mm. yeah and it was just really fascinating to see how what i thought was like a righteous form of anger could very easily be seen as like insolence in another cultural context Right. So that's a sense of emotion being social in that it's about impacts between people. Yeah. And there's also emotion that gets shared, um, which is really interesting as well, where you all feel the same emotion and that feels stronger, which feels, I guess it's the same thing, but that's a positive feedback loop rather than a conflict feedback between people. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Great. Uh, Any other topics you want to cover, Vin, before we wrap up? Nothing too deep. I suppose I saw a tweet the other day um, where they very cleverly circumvented like the typical emotion versus rationality dichotomy of um, having uh, that conflict between the heart and the head. And instead of saying, oh, it's my emotions against my rationality, it's my emotion, rational, emotional, rational complex against like another emotional, rational cluster. And I thought that that's a more accurate phrasing or like depiction of what's going on in my head when um, I feel like this typical head versus heart dynamic going on. Oh, so you're saying that when that happens, the part that you're thinking of as rational has got some other emotion linked to it as well. And indeed, the part that's very emotional has probably done lots of complex cognitive processing to work itself out in the first place. It's actually quite rational. Um, uh, Oh, that's that's really good. Yeah. Interesting. Thanks. That's like a that's a great tip because the thing I was about to ask uh, at the end is if you had any obvious like tips or things that people can do in practice to use all this mm. or to develop this day to day. I suppose my practical tips would be having some kind of breath work, some mindfulness practice that allows you to focus in on your bodily sensations. And breath work is a really good one because you're focusing on your like lungs. And I happen to feel many of my emotions in my chest area. Um, I'm not sure what other people feel it, but this helps for me um, to at least like progressively take notice of my chest, my lungs, my heart, and eventually even like my stomach. These surprisingly have... Uh, focus I like have concentrations of like emotion whenever I feel them um so that's my first oh, so when you pay attention to the body you then feel you get awareness of the emotion in more rich detail that yes. was there anyway yeah so I, I'll be able to like associate guilt or compunction in this in my I guess stomach area and and that seems to be where it's like concentrated the most Mm. or whenever i'm stressed um i tend to like clench my jaw very strongly and not being aware of this leads to bruxism and like you know teeth grinding and just being aware of that suddenly allows me to just let go and focus on like the more mental or cognitive aspects of it and unpack the emotion and this leads to the next point of like how i manage to regulate my emotions like okay now that i have noticed when my body is like tensing up or like feeling some 
crunching or like my skin crawling or something like that. Uh, what can I do to um, regulate it? I write things down and I start mm. to like conceive of things. So this is where the, this is the mental bit of the emotion regulation, just mm. having some um, way to regulate it by writing it down in a diary and unpacking it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've got much better at the combat cognitive side in the last five or 10 years by doing exactly that, like journaling. So specifically I've got an instinct where if I feel I'm not wanting to talk about or write about something if I'm like being avoidant then I'm like no I must actually go and write about it because usually uh, there's something rich and interesting going that I'm in denial about or wanting to hide from something and it really draws it out either talking to a really close friend about it just or writing it just writing it down on my own definitely improves that that uh, makes me more intelligent about my emotion mm-hmm. um, so interesting and it really really interesting to hear you combining it with the bodily stuff and the both kind of are important cool right thanks <laughs> Finn that was a fun conversation we'll put loads of links in the show notes to all, all yeah there's a ton of stuff that we both mentioned mm-hmm. yeah I'll put my reading um, down in the links as well so yeah thanks so much Francis thanks take care bye bye